The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. We pick up this morning where we left off last week as Jesus is teaching His disciples about the necessity of faith. It comes as they pass back by a fig tree that Jesus had cursed the day before that's now withered from the roots up. And Peter is left astonished by what he's seen. And so Jesus uses this opportunity to teach his disciples here just days before he goes to the cross about faith and the necessity of faith. And in Jesus' teaching of faith, he frames it around a teaching on prayer. For context, we'll look at verse 20 through 24. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus' answer to him, Jesus' response to him is simple. Have faith in God. And truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt it in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass. It will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Why is it that Jesus makes this leap from faith, have faith in God, to this teaching on prayer? The reason is because prayer is... An exercise of faith. If you have faith in God, you will pray. Prayer is an exercise in faith. It's a a faith that God will hear us, right? When we pray, when we come before God in prayer, we have faith that He will hear our prayers, And we have faith that his hearing of us is based on his acceptance and forgiveness of us, right? We believe that he will hear us, that's faith, and we believe that the reason why God is willing to hear our prayers to him is because He has accepted us and he has forgiven us of our sins. This is Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? That is, who shall come before him? That's what we do in prayer. We come before the Lord. We bring our requests, our supplications before him. Who can come before the Lord God? The psalmist asks. Only he who has clean hands and a pure heart. 
who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. The problem here then is left to our own devices. Not a single one of us could approach God. Not a single one of us could come before him in prayer. He would not hear. He would not accept because not a single one of us has clean hands and a pure heart. We're all guilty of sin. We are all in need of the forgiveness of God. And the promise of God is that when by faith he forgives us, he cleanses us, he gives us a new heart, and he now accepts us to come before him. This is Psalm 66, verses 16 through 19. Come and hear, all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he's done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, if I had hid iniquity in my heart, if I had loved sin in my heart, in some some translations, if I had unforgiveness in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Prayer is an exercise in faith. Have faith in God, Jesus says, and that faith is most clearly exercised through prayer. Prayer is an exercise of faith because it focuses our attention and our affections on what God has already done for us and the promises that he's made that he will work on our behalf. If we understand that prayer at its core is an exercise of faith, then the converse is true as well, that prayerlessness is an exercise of unbelief. It is the result of pride. It is the expression that you think you can do it on your own. You are not in need of him when the reality is you cannot and I cannot do it on our own. You see, this is exactly the lesson that the disciples needed at this point in Jesus' ministry. Remember where we are here, most likely a Wednesday before the Friday that Jesus is crucified. As we said last week, these these disciples have not been the the stalwart example of prayer. Each and every time Jesus asked, would you come and would you pray with me? Would you join with me in a serious time of prolonged prayer? They took a nap. They had up until this point in their ministry been so dependent on the presence of Jesus. And soon now, in just a few days, Jesus would be crucified, eventually ascend to the right hand of the Father. And these men more than ever will be dependent on prayer. Certainly more than they are when Jesus was with them. The reality is, is that their dependence is the same as our dependence. We need God to move. We need God to work in every situation. You are and I am totally dependent on him. 
We do not have the ability to cause things to happen in a long-term and meaningful way for the glory of God on our own. We need the Lord. And when we have faith in the Lord, then that faith is exercised in prayer. Now, if that is true, then we should pay very close attention to what God's Word says about the things that would make our prayers ineffective, right? If you are in desperate need of God and I am in desperate need of God, and if we are ultimately and totally completely dependent upon Him and we need Him to move, therefore we need to come before Him and and plead with Him to work and to do things then we should pay very close attention to the things in the Scriptures that would say, would make our prayers before God ineffective. And that is where we find ourselves in this text today. It is one of the things that makes our prayers ineffective. And what we learn from the text is that it is the refusal to forgive another. That unforgiveness, unforgiveness harbored in our hearts towards another causes our prayers and supplications and requests to God to be ineffective. Not only that, it it seems from the text, and I wish it weren't so, that there's even more at risk than that. Now, I will admit right off the bat that this is a difficult text. That's why I didn't include it last week. That's why this week we spend the majority of our time on one verse. Because it's difficult. It, it's not necessarily difficult to understand. I think it's, it's pretty clear. But man, is it ever difficult to apply. My prayer is that with the help of the Holy Spirit this morning, as you and I engage with this text, we will be, by His grace, freed from the harboring of unforgiveness and bitterness towards another in obedience to God's Word. Jesus says this, Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that... Your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This verse is difficult for us to take because of the language that is used here, right? I wish these words weren't there. What is it and who is it that Jesus says we are to forgive? Anything against any one. Now, let me ask you a question. What and who does that include? Anything and any one. Now, our natural response to this text is, but you don't know what that person did to me. You don't know the pain and the hurt that they've caused me. You don't know the pain and the hurt that they've caused my spouse. You don't know the pain and the hurt that they've 
caused my children. And the reality is, this morning, you're right, I do not know. But I'm not the one who said it. Jesus is the one who said it. And he knows. He knows. He knows all things. He sees everything. And his command is still. When you stand to pray, when you come before God in prayer, forgive anyone for anything. So my question here then is, what does it mean to forgive? What does Jesus mean to forgive? Forgiveness is the removal of guilt. We stand before God condemned, guilty of our trespasses, guilty of our sins, guilty of our rejection of Him, guilty of our disobedience. And when God forgives us our sins, He removes our guilt from us. That's forgiveness, the removal of guilt. Now Jesus does that to us. God does that to us in a, in a, a very you know, legal way, and we understand it in legal terms, right? If we're guilty of breaking the law, we stand before a judge, and that judge either finds us guilty or not guilty, I guess a, a jury does, and then our, our punishment is dependent upon that, right? So we understand it in legal terms, guilt and, you know, freedom, And that's the way, in, in a lot of ways, God relates to us. We can understand it in those terms. But for us, it's not necessarily those terms, right? We don't have the ability to forgive a person their sins. We don't have the ability to remove the guilt of their sin from them. Only God has that ability. So for us, what does this forgiveness Look like, and the only way that I can come to a clear understanding of it is to see how God's forgiveness is given to us, how it's modeled for us, and therefore how we should model to another. And so, forgiveness is the removal of guilt from a person, meaning that I will not bring it up in the future as an issue of conflict. That's what it means for God to forgive us. It means that when we come before Him, He's not bringing up our sins. as an issue of, of conflict. He's removed them. That also means that we will not bring up those things about another to another person. If we've forgiven them. It means that we are not dwelling on the issue, the hurt, the sin, the wrongdoing. It means we have let it go. It means that I am not harboring bitterness or resentment towards another. 
As I said, our forgiveness of others is informed by God's forgiveness of us. That means that how God deals with us is how we should deal with another. And how has God dealt with us? Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you, right? This is Paul's teaching to be kind and tenderhearted towards others, forgiving others as, as the same way, just as God has been kind to you, tenderhearted to you, forgiving to you. So you are to be kind and tenderhearted and forgiving to another. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. What does that bearing with one another mean? It means being patient with one another, being long-suffering with one another, not expecting perfection all the time or immediately, but bearing with them in kindness and humility and patience in the same way God bears with us in our sin. He has every right to smote us. And I, I like any opportunity to use the word smote in a sermon. <laughs> he has every right. But he bears with us. And to live this way, if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also should forgive. Uh, no, it's not what it says. Must forgive. And how is it that God has dealt with us? God has been gracious to us, hasn't he? He's been kind to us, hasn't he? He's been patient with us and long-suffering with us, hasn't he? This is Psalm 103, 11 and 12. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. I've shared this before. This verse is interesting to me. So we're using this, this language of, you know, sort of, North and south, right? As far as the heavens are above the earth. Now, I realize above the earth is not north. I get that. I, I tried the other day to explain that to Anna in the car on the way to school, and it's hard to explain. Like, north is up, but it's not up, right? It's on, on a two-dimensional plane. It's up, but in our world, it's not up. But you, you get it. As far as the, the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. And then as far as the east is from the west, he removes our sin from us. Well, you think about right now, if we started traveling north, eventually we would reach what? The North Pole. And once we reach the North Pole, 
we start traveling south, right? So the, the traveling north is not never ending. It gets to a point to where you end and then you begin to travel south. But if you started traveling east, would you ever stop? That's the point. God's removed our sins. God's removed our transgressions as far as possible from us out of his loving kindness towards us. This is how he's dealt with us. This is how he has forgiven us. Isaiah 44 verse 22, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. This is, this is imagery of the morning dew being burnt up by the rising sun. It's imagery of, I've blotted out your transgressions completely. They're gone. And in the span of eternity, they were as momentary as the morning dew. That's how God has dealt with us. That's how God calls us to deal with others. That's how God has forgiven us. That's how he calls us to forgive others. That's what it means when Jesus says, forgive. When you stand to pray, forgive. Now, what is forgiveness not? Forgiveness is not, however, the absence of anger over sin. Scriptures tell us in Ephesians 4.26 to be angry and do not sin. There is a righteous indignation over sin, right? And we can have a righteous indignation, a righteous anger over sin and still be modeling how God deals with us. Because guess what? He has a righteous anger over our sin. Forgiveness is not the absence of anger over sin. Forgiveness is not the removal of consequences for our sin. Even though God forgives us of our sin, we are still responsible for the consequences of that sin. The clearest example in, in the scriptures for me, the clearest example is David. King David, who had a, a, a grievous sin that, that started in lust, that moved to adultery and ultimately to murder. That's pretty bad. But yet God is gracious and God is kind and God is long-suffering and God is forgiving and he forgives King David, doesn't he? And King David's request is, please don't take this child. But even though there was forgiveness, there was still consequences. And David lived under those consequences. When I say forgive, when Jesus says forgive another, it does not mean pretending that it didn't happen or that it wasn't a big deal. 
Forgiveness is not pretending that it no longer hurts or causes you pain. Forgiveness is not continuing in an abusive relationship. These are all ways that we understand what forgiveness is. It's not those things. And see, when we hear forgive another, our response of, but Jason, you don't know what they've done, has all of these things under the surface, right? But forgiveness is simply by the grace of God, not holding it over that person. It is to move on. Now, I know how very difficult that is to do. I know how very difficult that is for us. And you're probably sitting there this morning thinking, man, that's hard. Especially when we've been hurt so very deeply. Because we feel like that if we forgive that person, we are letting them off the hook for it. Right? That if I forgive them, then they're getting away with it. But forgiveness is only possible. Luke tells us that Jesus not only tells them what will take place, but he also shows them how it will all be in fulfillment of the Old Testament. This is Luke 18, verse 31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. You see, the death of Messiah was prophesied in the Old Testament, not in general terms, not in generalities, but in specifics. And every one of them took place. Every single one of them. Jesus tells them that he will be delivered. Jesus knows that it would be at the hands of Judas. They do not know this. This is fulfillment of Psalm 41 verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. That he will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. This is the Jewish Supreme Court, if you will. The chief priests is the current high priest, all living past high priests, the captain of the temple, and other people who ruled over the priests. This is the, the ruling priests, the chief priests. And the scribes, these are experts, these are the experts in the, the rabbinic and Old Testament laws. This is who Jesus would be handed over to and they would condemn him to to death and eventually hand him over to the Gentiles so that the sentence of death would be fulfilled. Now Jesus has talked about this before, but this time he says they're going to do four things to me. And they will mock him. 
Could you imagine that just for a moment? The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Holy One of Israel, the Creator of all things, the Sustainer of all things, the Sovereign One Himself who has given each and every one of them breath is now mocked by His very creation. They will mock Him. They will spit on Him. This is the ultimate act of contempt. And they will flog him. A whip with multiple pieces of leather at the end filled with pieces of bone and glass and rock and metal. And they will kill him. Jesus doesn't say it here, but they certainly would have understood that this killing would have been by means of crucifixion. Isn't it amazing that Jesus knew exactly what would take place down to the very detail. How? Because he is the son of man. He is the son of man. And knowing what laid ahead of him, he did it voluntarily. Could you imagine this? This one is... Even more staggering, not only did he do it with resolute conviction, not only did he do it voluntarily, but he did it for his joy. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, looking at Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It was for his joy. What joy? What joy? How did Jesus find joy? In his humiliation. Now, for a long time, I believed that when it talked about for the joy that was set before him, that what is meant by that is his ultimate glorification. But I'm not convinced of that anymore. Because Jesus existed in eternity past in glorification. So what is this joy? I believe that this joy is a purchased people. A people made righteous. A people from every tribe and tongue. A people for his good pleasure. Philippians 2, starting in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This this corporate working of God in a people for his joy, for his good pleasure. Therefore, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may become blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of the crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. It's a people. It's a people set apart. It's a people made righteous from every tribe, from every tongue, and from every nation. This is his great joy. And Jesus knew after three days he would rise again. 
Now, Mark doesn't tell us any more than that. He ends the exchange there. But Luke records the disciples' response to this. In Luke chapter 18, verse 34, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. I want to read what Philip Ryken says of this in his commentary on Luke 18. The disciples did not understand any of this at the time. When Jesus spoke to them about his sufferings, death, and resurrection, they understood none of these things. What Jesus said was perfectly clear, but the disciples did not understand a word of it, perhaps because they thought Jesus could not be taken literally. He said he was going to die and rise again, but the disciples were not ready to understand a suffering, bleeding Savior. How could they? Until they saw Jesus betrayed with a kiss and nailed to a cross. Or how could they understand his ultimate triumph until they looked into the empty tomb or saw Jesus in the glory of his resurrection bodies? The disciples did not understand, but he said it anyway. So that they would when the time came. He also said it so that we would understand. Do you understand what Jesus did in dying on the cross and raising again on the third day? Do you understand as well that he is offering you eternal life in himself? As we come to the text this morning and we see Jesus out in front with his face set to Jerusalem, knowing what lies ahead of him, willingly enduring the shame. Are you filled with amazement and fear? I want to encourage you this week to take time and to stop and to read the gospel accounts of the Holy Week. We'll do this in our family devotion. I want to encourage you to do it in yours to ask God for this not to be just the same old story that you've heard time and time again. But would you, by the grace of God, be filled with amazement of the depth of love he has for us, amazed at the righteousness of God, and fear at how seriously God takes sin, sin, the lengths that he was willing to go to atone for it. Father, would you, by your grace, come show us our great need for a Savior. We are lost in our sins, unable to save ourselves. But you, in the fullness of time, at the exact right moment, you sent your Son to become sin, crushed according to your good pleasure to be an atonement, not for his sin, he was sinless, but for ours. God, may we be filled with amazement and fear. You are holy, you are just.
you are righteous. And by your grace, we are made the same. In Jesus' name, amen. Footnote will tell you why most scholars believe that it was added at some later point, not in the earliest of manuscripts, by someone for the sake of application, most likely. It reads, but if you do not believe, if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive you your trespasses. Now, the reason why I read it to you and the reason why we're going to talk about it is because though it may not be found in Mark chapter 11, it is taken from another point in the scriptures. And probably whoever wrote this manuscript used it here to drive home this point. You can find it in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, shortly after his teaching on prayer, In verse 14, he says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, I will admit that these verses are hard. And I will admit that it is not at least to me in my feeble brain, it is not clear how these things fit together. Because there is not a single thing you or I can do to earn God's forgiveness. The scriptures are clear on that. But there is, it seems, something we can do that would cause Him to withhold it. And that is our withholding of forgiveness to another. I really wish I could stand here this morning and say, but this isn't really what this means. But I can't do it. I cannot make the Bible say something that it doesn't. And I cannot make the Bible not say something that it does. I can't do it. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses... Neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. But here's a really good opportunity for us to understand how we study God's Word. We don't build whole theologies off of single verses. That's called proof texting. We let the Scriptures make sense of the Scriptures. Our emotions don't make sense of the Scriptures. Our thoughts don't make sense of the Scriptures. Our feelings don't make sense of the Scriptures. The Scriptures make sense of the Scriptures. And where there seems to be a contradiction in the Scriptures, the contradiction is not in God's Word. The contradiction is in our understanding. I say that to say that the rest of the Scriptures help us make sense of this verse. Take, for example, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another... As God in Christ forgave you. Now look at the order in Paul's teaching and look at the order in Jesus' teaching. Right? So in Jesus' teaching, it seems that Jesus is saying, if you forgive, then I will forgive. Right? And then in Paul's order, it is, 
No, you are to forgive because God has forgiven you, right? The orders seem different, at least they do to me. So they seem like they're contradictory, but have faith in God. They are not. They are teaching the same thing just from two different perspectives. Giving us a fuller picture of the forgiveness of God and our call to forgive others. Both of these statements are true. To get forgiveness from God, forgive others. To forgive others, you need forgiveness from God. Though they seem contradictory, they are not. I think the best way to understand the issue of the forgiveness of God and the forgiveness of others is to understand that it is not a matter of earning forgiveness, of us doing something that earns God's forgiveness. It's not, an, it's not a, a matter of merit. It's a matter of ability. You see, the reality is that you have no capacity on your own to forgive another person. And I have no capacity on my own to forgive another person unless we know the forgiveness of God. And if we know the forgiveness of God, if we know deep in our hearts in unshakable faith that I do more in one day to offend my holy God than any person could do in a lifetime to offend me, and he still forgives me, then knowing that kind of forgiveness will lead us to forgive others no matter what they've done. You see, we struggle with the forgiveness of others Because the weight of our own sin is lost on us. John Stott says it this way. Once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. If on the one hand we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it proves that we have minimized our own. Lloyd-Jones says this, it means that the proof that you are forgiven is that you forgive others. If we think that our sins are forgiven by God and we refuse to forgive someone else, we are making a mistake. We have never been forgiven. The man who knows he has been forgiven only in and through the shed blood of Christ is a man who must forgive others. He cannot help himself. If we really know Christ as our Savior, our hearts are broken and cannot be hard. And we cannot refuse forgiveness. If you are refusing forgiveness to anybody... I suggest that you've never been forgiven. I say to the glory of God and in utter humility that whenever I see myself before God and realize something 
of what my blessed Lord has done for me. I am ready to forgive anybody, anything. I cannot withhold it. I don't even want to withhold it. The verse means that the forgiveness of others is the evidence of our forgiveness from God. Now, how in the world can we live this way? Well, if you just come to this verse and you just go on this one verse, then you're going to leave here defeated and you're going to leave here crushed and you're going to leave here downtrodden saying, I can't do it. There's no way I give up. But this verse doesn't just exist in a vacuum. It doesn't just exist by itself. No, it exists in the same place where Jesus says, have faith in God. How can you live this way? You live this way by faith in God. You live this way by faith in God. You live this way by remembering the mountain of your sin that was removed by God's grace and forgiveness. And by faith, you say, God, would your Holy Spirit help me to remove this mountain of unforgiveness. That's how you live this way. God, would you help us? How impossible this is. How difficult this is. We need your help. We need your spirit to come and to guide our hearts. We need eyes to see our sin. We need eyes to see your great and glorious forgiveness, the grace that's found in Jesus Christ, to see the way you have dealt graciously with us in patience and kindness, bearing with us how you have removed our sin from us as far as the east is from the west, how you have taken it and buried it in the deepest of seas, how our guilt has been removed as Jesus paid the penalty for us. And God, in seeing how you have forgiven us and seeing how you have dealt with us, God, would we then in obedience deal in the same manner with others? Forgiving one another. Knowing that vengeance is yours. Forgiving one another. Laying down our pride. Forgiving one another. Living for your glory and not for ours, forgiving one another. Jesus, would you help us? It's in your powerful name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.